Anyways, in regards to the jazz loft, snow day, class is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> this could be a big conversation and we may want to just table it, but something I just want to address because I've already been asked about it. It was announced, I think, yesterday. So this is putting a timestamp on this episode recording date that Apple had acquired the classical music streaming service, Prime Phonic. Whoa. Is that the one you subscribe to? Yeah, I didn't okay, even know I couldn't this. remember yeah. if it was Prime Phonic or Idagio, because those are like the two main classical music streaming services. Basically, Apple, it, it was announced that um, they're being acquired by Apple. They are now no longer accepting any new subscribers to Prime Phonic. And the service is going to be shut down sometime next month, and they'll give you a refund basically on anything that you paid for and what's going to happen the story is at least the way it's being covered in the press i'm actually kind of excited this is getting more press coverage than i think it normally would right now it's kind of a slow time in like all the tech journals and things so the one and only tech story right now <laughs> is, is yeah this acquisition by apple and apple i think they're going to be launching sometime in 2022 a classical music streaming service of their own so i'm not sure what that means that that just means it's a, a new menu in Apple Music being very conservative or maybe it is its own standalone classical music centered streaming app that's all we know we don't know anything more if you have Prime Phonic you get a refund streeter <laughs> and then you get like half a year of Apple Music for free as well so, oh cool but I know Apple is kind of we've been hinting at making I don't know how you call it like culture or like high music like jazz and classical They've been kind of um, hinting at making that a bit more of a, of a focus just because some of the updates in the last iOS release this spring, this past spring, was like lossless Dolby audio and stuff, which a lot of that is of that feature is only available on like jazz recordings and classical music recordings mm. and things. So, so they are putting an emphasis on that, which is kind of cool. I've actually, I've actually noticed that myself just being on the back end uploading my album. Hmm. That I've noticed that Apple Music has like a, a lossless little tag on my on my album, which which Spotify is not. Spotify actually compresses your your audio quality or your audio quite a bit, and it it sacrifices the audio quality. So say say like Bandcamp, um, which right. is sort of it's geared towards like indie musicians generally, but you know a lot of classical and jazz people use it for many reasons, but one of them being that that the audio quality is higher and it's lossless. And so I saw that Apple Music was going in that direction, and I didn't really stop to consider the implications. So this makes yeah. sense. I hope what and this means I mean, is that I can I can uh, I don't have to go through the prime. You know, we were t talking last time about trying to hit up the prime phonic people, and I haven't gotten around to doing that. So yeah, yep, Apple's so. taking care of it for me. <laughs> they they whacked them. <laughs> That's like the best. You can just check it off doing nothing. <laughs> like those are the wins in life <laughs> when, when, when when that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so. I'm, I guess, optimistic. I'm totally cautious. I mean, just because we've kind of expressed in the past our our frustration, and we're not alone in thinking this. Pretty much anyone in this field would probably agree that streaming just isn't catered to classical music. The classical music experience on any of the streaming platforms and apps is pretty subpar. But if anyone can build a well-designed app, it is Apple. And if they're going to focus on something like this, which it sounds like they are, could be something kind of cool. I think it'll be great. Yeah. Anyways, stay tuned. Uh, we'll follow this as we learn more, and hopefully we get a great classical music streaming service out of it at the end. All right. You said you had some follow-up as well? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to clear something up from the last podcast. You know, this is one of those cases where you hear yourself in editing, and 
just think it's unbelievable that you just keep saying this thing over and over again. Oh, you know, God. You're like, you know, oh, no. qu quadruple down on this thing. That's just not how I want to say it at all. I, I kept saying the word perfect when I was talking about the recording. I was like, you know, you got to edit it till it's perfect. And I'm sure you, you knew what I was saying, but I just want to make it abundantly clear that I, I don't actually think that my album is perfect. And, <laughs> and that, um, I, you know, I think there, there are a lot of things that I could improve and have done, you know, could do better. I just... I was, I was using it as shorthand for pretty much as good as one could reasonably get it before one starts to get diminishing returns, start sleeping in the studio and um, right. basically going insane over it. But I think you know what I meant. But, you know, it, it just I kept saying yeah. the word perfect and that was really bothering me. So I just wanted to, to clear the air on that. Yeah, no, when you said perfect, I was um, well aware you didn't mean literally flawless. <laughs> as in like not one picosecond of audio <laughs> was anything but perfection. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even asterisk it at all. So it's not like if, if you just went in cold and you didn't know me, I think you could potentially walk away from that thinking that I was a, an enormous prick. Um, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So noted. So do, do you want to get to the, the real meat of this episode? Sure. I, I'm just going to get some more tea, actually. I like drank through this tea really sure. quickly. I'm going to tea up, as the rich white people say on the golf course. So this time it's my turn to to be the NPR interviewer. Okay, right. I don't think I'll be as good as you were last time. Well, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think so either. I, I'm I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, one might even say perfect. <laughs> oh man, wait, is that on the record? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Chris, uh, now you're you're a composer now, apparently. So it's funny, um, I wasn't actually planning on talking about this today until you brought it up that we should probably talk about it, <laughs> but it's funny, um, reminds me of a friend who graduated college with a history degree. She goes, yep, I guess now I'm a historian. <laughs> 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 and so, sure, I have now written a piece of music, I guess I am now a composer. <laughs> so. yeah. More importantly than, than written a piece of music, you've written a piece of music and you've put it on YouTube. So yeah, that, that's all that counts, right? That's fair. I mean, so that's a line to draw and, and go over. But I also think after you've been paid to compose a piece of music or paid for a piece of music that you've written, I think that's like the real line. Like you're, oh man, you're like an actual composer. That, yeah. You know, you make money from composing. So. Yeah. So first of all, do you want to tell us what the, what the thing is, where you can find it? And maybe we can put sure. it up here because it's pretty short. Sure. Well, first, even before that, sure. I'm going to just give like a quick backstory. So, See, I told you I suck at this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's... it's <laughs> All right. Um, go grab some food. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, take yeah, it from yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, we, we could do the whole like Glenn Gould interviews, Glenn Gould about Glenn Gould thing. But <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or he interviewed himself. Or yeah. <laughs> it's one of the better musician interviews like ever done, yeah. which kind of says something. So Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, yeah, I've been wanting to have like a, I've been wanting to get into a new hobby like over the past six months or so. I think just a symptom of COVID and lockdown and, you know, we're now professional podcasters, right? This is episode 24. This is, this is like big leagues. Yeah. So, so that's no longer a new hobby. That's just like, you know, us. So I always so admired composers. And I think we've touched on this in the past where, I mean, I've admired composers a lot more than I admire performers. And I say that us both being performers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, just th I, I just think composers actually control the, where the art is going. 
right? And the innovations of the art in the past have been mostly done by composers. Sure, there are exceptions, you know, Heifetz maybe on the violin, you could say it was a guy that actually, you know, redirected the way music developed in a good way. Um, and he was, he was just a, a, a virtuoso violinist. But the, by the, number, large, the number of performers who were not also composers who have sort of redirected music, you could probably count on one hand, literally. Y- yeah, so yeah. And by this, just again, for the record, I think we mean classical music. Jazz yes, yeah, works yeah. A, bit, a bit differently, yeah. yeah. But yeah, for, for classical music, yeah, it's just, just a couple, really. Yeah. And yeah, so I've always so admired composers, and I've always wanted to get into composing. I never thought I was like naturally good at it, but when you talk to any composer, like no one's naturally good at it. As we've touched upon in the past, it, it's it's a craft, right? It's a craft. I say that in, in a good way. There's so much music theory you have to know as, as a composer. It's so much technical stuff. So so I, I always wanted to kind of dive into that side of it and actually become, actually start writing stuff and being a composer and putting stuff out there. Not to fulfill some grand ambition, no, because it was it just sounds fun and cool and interesting and different and new. And and also from our perspective, right, us being performers for so long, it's new but very relatable where it's, um yeah, it's just a different angle on this stuff that we've been doing for years and years at this point. It's kind of like trying to write a story after, you know, de- decades of reading fiction. It's, it's obviously exactly. different, but it's, it's not a whole different thing, you know. Exactly, exactly. So... Yeah, I got myself a MIDI keyboard, and I, I got uh, some professional sample libraries, which we, we can talk about, which I'd love to talk about, actually. Yeah, so got that sort of stuff, and as I knew would be the case, the hardest things to actually, like, sit down and start. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that, that did take a lot of time. And then, yeah, actually learning the technology, because that's another thing I learned. And again, the composer community is really fantastic, actually. There's so many free resources across the internet and forms of people being like extremely supportive. Contrary to what you think, the composer community is actually way closer <laughs> and, and more tight-knit than the performer community. <laughs> oh, for sure, um, yeah. I mean, if yeah. I may jump in real quick, I think yeah. it's because composers aren't really in direct competition with each other, you know? Performance, I think it's fair. It's not totally true, but in in some ways, performance is kind of zero sum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially nowadays, where back in the 1800s, when you know the orchestra was going to either premiere a Brahms symphony or a Tchaikovsky symphony, right? <laughs> that was like a zero sum game, as you're saying. Yeah. But nowadays, the world of composing is just so broad, and that's one of the things I realized too. Um, you know, spoiler alert. One of my goals is kind of to turn this into a side hustle. You know, to actually maybe not make a killing, but it'd be kind of cool to maybe just make some cash on the side. Like, it'd be such an achievement of mine, I think, if there's some low, mid-budget-ish nature documentary that I score. I would consider that a huge success, and I'd be very grateful. So... God damn it, Chris. I have this list of questions, and you're just running, you're blazing through them all. (laughs) You're just... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll stop. But yeah, I just want to say... Um, no, 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 I'm just kidding. Well, well, and that's what I kind of learned when I was becoming a part of this composer community online is that right now, in a way, there's never been more content that needs music. Between video games, between original series that go straight to streaming, between shows, between movies, obviously. There, there's so much. There, there's so much. So, so in a way, it's never been better to be a composer. So... That kind of contributes, I, I think, at least to why um, it's such a collaborative environment. Back to actually like the composing part. Yeah, so I got my 
MIDI keyboard. I got some sample libraries, started composing stuff. And again, like everything sounds terrible at first, right? Because it's like writing, right? Like you write like 50 pages, you'll probably throw out most of them. And then maybe by page 62, you're actually, you're actually getting somewhere. So, and that doesn't change, I think, as far yeah. as I know. <laughs> uh, Aaron Sorkin, who said, yeah, no, he's like, I'm in a constant state of writer's block. Aaron mm-hmm. Sorkin, the, the great screenwriter. He said, yeah, it's just, that's something you deal with and you master getting past, but it's always there. Yeah. So, yeah, so I just found some stock nature footage um, that was like free use on the internet, downloaded that, and I didn't like score it directly to film. But I kind of had that in the back of my head, like I'd be, it'd be like some scenic stuff like this that I want to put music under. So when David Attenborough comes and narrates, it just sits very nicely for the new BBC special coming out that I score. (laughs) 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 Dude, uh, I start at the top, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's how you got to do it. So, so that's it. And, um, and yeah, so it's, it's a short piece. Um, It's maybe a minute, minute and a half. It's not anything real robust, it's, but it's charming, it's fun. I, you know, a lot of it was learning how to use the software, which again, it's one of those you just have to like grapple with it and wrestle with it to learn how to make all this stuff work. And then, and then it's a matter of just doing it and of course putting it on, on, on the tube. There you have it and we can put a clip right here for just a little sample yeah. and a little flavor of it. good surprise to, to see because you've had on your website for some time now this tab that's called film scoring and, and it, yeah. it has uh-huh. had a it has had a coming soon on it for for a few months now or something like that and i've yeah. been really looking forward to see what you come up with um i, I pulled i pulled a james bond you know just like all right the movie's gonna come out just <laughs> <laughs> we don't know when you know you're, you're really on your deathbed and you're you're updating your your squarespace page or something or whatever <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. exactly exactly but anyway um it was it was a pleasant surprise so so i checked it out and yeah i i, I loved it. I, it it was kind of reminding me of i think maybe steven spielberg danny elfman like that was kind of the the vibe i was getting ah. it was really obviously reminiscent of film music but even more so, it seemed like like video game music, which also maybe an avenue that you can sort of look into, expanding into. I think that that distinction is quite quickly becoming meaningless. Um, the distinction between like video game music versus film music. Yeah, I think like yeah. the like oh heck yeah, video game scoring is getting really like intense, and I think it's a it's a good source of work for a lot of people that I, that I know. Yeah, and and, and the, it's really taken off in the last five, ten years. I mean. Still, some of the greatest melodies that are always stuck in my head are like the great Nintendo melodies from Zelda and like Mario and and I mean just like the whole Nintendo universe. I mean, I always loved that about Nintendo. Like forty years or like thirty years before everyone else, they realized music was an important part of video games. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
I think in Japan, there's still like a, it's like a really great orchestra. It's like the Nintendo Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a professional, like really fantastic orchestra. Yeah, they're super and, legit. Which I think is cool. And something we should link to, and you should definitely check out if you haven't already. It was a concert from a few years ago in Sweden. It might be with like the Stockholm Symphony or something like that. But it's a concert of video game music. Hmm. And it's... Oh, it's fantastic. And it's video game music. I mean, I don't really play that much video games. I'm not like a hardcore gamer or anything, but some of this music I was not aware of. And it was gorgeous and wonderful. It's music from the Assassin's Creed series and Final Fantasy, I think, too. Video game music has always been really great and really interesting. Like so many things that the internet has done, it has fractured it so much. It's it's just so much more accessible to to make video games, to 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 play video games that are sort of very niche. It's this phenomenon that the internet you know really brings out, which is that essentially nothing is is all that niche anymore, because mm-hmm. even yeah, the most sure. niche thing on the planet, you know, you can still if if you can find a way to get it out there, you can still find you know tens of thousands of people who are interested in it just by the law of large numbers. Right. And and with that, you know, that breeds a lot of work for composers as, you know, mm-hmm. people who can compose video game music and, and then also musicians who, who have to record sure. it. If it's not being done by these, like, what did you call them? The sample libraries. Sample libraries, yeah, which I do want to yeah. get to because I was, yeah, I was really yeah. curious about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that that's something, you know, if, if you want to make this into a side hustle, that's maybe another avenue to, to look into because there's this really interesting aspect about film music that we've talked about before that it's very... It's very practical in a way that that maybe quote unquote normal compositions are not, in that sure, they have sure. to they have to have some relation to what's happening on screen. With video games, it seems even more so. You know, when I was watching your video and and the way that it starts out with what what is it? Is it harp and is it, and a cellista? Is that what yeah, you got? That's going? Good. Yeah, that's good. Yep, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts with that, and then and then you get the sort of the underswell of the strings, and then the the flutes on top as, as you get to like the, the sort of uh, space footage or whatever, not the space, mm-hmm. but like the sky footage. Right. And, then, and then the ending is more sparse with just the piano. It seems like it's, it's following this like very logical progression that's, it, you can, you can I, I, don't, I mean this in a good way, but you can sort of look yep. behind the music at the sort of artifice that's pulling at your, yeah. p- pulling at your emotions, right? You're like, oh, I see what you're doing here, right? You're, you're starting off this way and then you're adding this thing that has this feeling that's going along with what's on the screen. And then you're soaring above with the flutes, and then you're you're taking it away with the piano, you know. It's yeah. this like, oh, I see exactly what you're doing here, and that's a good thing. And, and it seems like you know, even that's true for movies more than like symphonies, and it's even more true for video games than I think for 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 movies. I'm glad you picked up on that, and I had a feeling you would. It's, you know, it's it's kind of right there if you listen for it, and if you watch the footage too. But yeah, even for a piece of music that's 120, 130 seconds or so. Yeah, there's a very clear beginning, middle, and end, right? Yeah. 
and that's um, just like there is in a movie. <laughs> so I, I was surprised to say that you didn't you didn't compose it with with the footage in mind because to me it seemed to go with the footage very well. Yeah. So w- when I was later putting the footage to it, I did like kind of kind of what you do sometimes in the editing booth. I edited the footage to the music. Ah. Okay. Yeah. That like makes a sense. fun fact. That's how like a lot of the the last like 10, 15 minutes of E.T the Spielberg film with the music by John Williams. A lot of that was edited that way, where John Williams, where it was just, they're having a hard time, uh, Spielberg and Williams, coordinating, you know, the music, getting it to like fit well with the scene and the pacing of it. So he just told John Williams, just write the music the way you would if it was going to be played by an orchestra and I'll cut the film to that. And it worked brilliantly, you know, the bike chase and then, you know, E.T. flying off in the spaceship and things. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can use this to to transition into talking about the the sample library. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I was going to ask about how you how you actually compose this thing. Like mm-hmm. uh, obviously, there's you know just getting down to to work on it, um, which is a hard part. Yeah. But did you did you did you compose it at the piano and then go yeah. to orchestrate it later, or did you did you have these right. orchestrations in mind? Like how, how did that how did that work? So, an account I'm gonna a YouTube account I'm gonna direct you towards, which you, even if you're not a composer, you're gonna find this very interesting. It's this guy by the name of Guy Michael Moore, or Guy Moore. He's an old British bloke. He's maybe like in his 50s or 60s, and he's, he has, he's the most British guy ever in the greatest way possible. He's <laughs> hilarious, and he has this YouTube channel where he shows basically how he composes, and he's a video game composer, and a fairly successful one from what I understand. And he might do, like again, like commercials and sort of other small stuff. But yeah, he's based over in in the UK. One of his recent videos from like last week or the week before, the whole goal, he was going to write a Western theme in half an hour. And and he just films the whole thing and he shows you, it's a lot of, you know, trial and error, trying to figure out a melody. And then if you know music theory well enough, you can, after you have a melody, you can just harmonize it. Maybe nothing groundbreaking, but something that would work and be good, right? So he kind of shows how you do it. And that's like a great video to watch just to understand how this process works. To answer your question, yeah, I sat at my digital MIDI keyboard, which I can plug right into my computer, which I run Logic on. And at first it's kind of like, you know, after I have an idea of what I want, or someday after I have an idea of what the director wants, (laughs) (laughs) you sort of start playing around and noodling and figuring out kind of what you want to go for. That's kind of what separates this guy I'm telling about on YouTube. He can do this in maybe you know, like 10 minutes, where it took me a few hours. <laughs> so, and again, like a lot of it's grappling with like the software and knowing how to change a sound, how to like overlay one sound to the other. Because to be a composer nowadays, it's no longer like the era of John Williams. Like John Williams still just composes all on paper. Nowadays, you almost have to be a little bit of a software engineer and you have to know editing digital audio workstations and sample libraries and and how to master audio and mix audio. You have to know quite a bit of that stuff, at least to like a solid foundational level. So you mean you weren't like Mozart, you know, in the candlelight with a, with a bottle of wine or or something, you know, just, just madly scratching away at, at something? In my head I was, but in, <laughs> in reality, no, no, it was... Yeah. It was in front of my my MacBook Pro. And then as far as like the sample libraries, which those are the actual sounds that you hear, like the digital instruments. Yeah, I bought some sample libraries from Spitfire Audio. They're one of like the three or four big players in this space. 
and they sound pretty good. And if you go to the website, you'll see they have all sorts of sample libraries. You're able to buy it from like cinematic brass, like a full orchestra, to more um, uh, like digital samples. You're going to have like more a Trent Reznor score, like for the Social Network and things, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's a whole world on its own. Yeah, and, yeah. And things. So, so I had a library. Um, the BBC Symphony Orchestra was one of my libraries. Also, the Spitfire Chamber Strings Library. That's what I used for the strings in that. And hmm. that's a really wonderful library. And that, instead of sampling a big orchestra and recording them in um, one of the recording studios in London, yeah, for the, they, um, for the Chamber Strings Library, yeah, it was a lot more intimate setting they recorded and got all the sound sa- samples for. So it's more, instead of a big John Williams score, it's more like a Alexandre Pla score, maybe to like say his score for the imitation game or something, kind of more intimate vibe. And so that was a bit more of the samples I, I used. And again, it's a lot of, um, a lot of like trial and error, but yeah, I kind of knew the vibe I wanted to, to, to get across. What kind of stuff was going on in your head when you were, what kind of composers were you thinking of? Yeah. So I think it's so funny. You said like John Williams or Danny Elfman. Yeah. So it's funny. I wasn't going for that at all. I was pretty shamelessly trying to copy and get inspiration from Philip Glass particularly uh, his the second movement of the Tyrol Concerto for piano and orchestra. Hmm. If you're not familiar, that's it's a gorgeous piece of music. It's absolutely wonderful. Philip Glass also came to mind, but to me, he's he's someone who's so much on the ground floor of what movie music nowadays sounds like. Yeah, I didn't even think to. I just was like, oh, that's cool. Right, right. It's almost like saying, oh man, this feels this this scene feels almost like a Hitchcock scene. It's like, yeah, right. you, there's, there's some things you don't even have to say. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, I was definitely channeling my inner Philip Glass, <laughs> but but at the same time, as I'm hearing myself talk, I also think this is kind of ridiculous. Like, it's just like a minute and a half of music. I didn't like yeah. go crazy. I didn't write a grand piece. This is just like part of this um, was mostly just trying to figure out how to like make the software work, how to actually get what I wanted to get yeah. sound wise and. It's like a proof of concept. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is very much like a, not even beta, like an alpha, just to see like, yeah. if I can make this happen even. Yeah. Because so, before I become a great film composer, I have to, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to figure this part out. Harmonically, like the piece, it's just like four, five chords at right. the end of the day. Maybe four, actually. So if you do a harmonic analysis, you're not going to come away with some really groundbreaking conclusion. <laughs> no, no. I, I, think, I think the more interesting part is in the orchestration. It seems like you were sort of flexing your your chops a little bit. Like, how do I go through the paces that are the sort of the standard moves that composers make? You know, it felt very idiomatic. Mm. I mean, this all in a good way. You know. Oh, thanks. Like, oh yeah, he added the strings there. That's totally a thing that people do. It's like, oh, you know, and then <laughs> there's a flute on top. And it's it's on yeah. the bottom. Oh. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds. And you, you above know. all people, know that's normally <laughs> yeah. <people> do. <laughs> <laughs> that's normally what we what we come in for. I mean this in the in a complimentary way, especially if you're trying to make this like a side hustle. Um, the the thing that you want, as soon as I start listening to it, the first feeling that I need to get is, oh yeah, this is a thing. 
Yeah. You know? Not like, you know, you tweet out, hey, I'm a composer now, and then I click on it, and you're like, what the f*** is this? <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah. I was <laughs> no, going for a very, yeah, I was going for a Stockhausen, you know, it's a <laughs> yeah. concerto for iron rod and, and skateboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was really going for a mix between Stockhausen, Krennic, and Cage. It's like, all right, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. all. That's all well and good, but if you want to get jobs, <laughs> you know, yeah. may, may I suggest something more palatable? <laughs> Concerto for skateboard and rainstorm. You know, it was, you know, my goal for this was to create something where it's, it sounds like I might have achieved this. Where if I said, oh no, this was pulled from some documentary somewhere so just a clip of the music written like oh, okay yeah yeah that sounds about right you know <laughs> yeah exactly it's never been hard, harder to be a full-time composer where that's your full-time career and that's how you make your living it has never been harder to do that but at the same time it has never been easier to make money composing music <laughs> all right if you follow right so yeah. as like a side gig or as something you do in, in addition to your other musical career or something because there's never been a bigger market a bigger need for original music pretty much everything needs music and there's so much there's so many things you know, not yeah. just not just like short so movies, indie movies, you know, mid mid tier budget stuff. There's all, all the video games, like we said, tons of video games. I mean, there's so many YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah. There's so many people making content on YouTube that that need like a little ditty in the background, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I challenge the listener. The next time you watch a documentary, like there's a new documentary on Bob Ross that came out last week or two weeks ago on Netflix. It has music. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I challenge everybody. The next time you watch something like that or a cooking show or something like spend a minute just trying to listen to the music in the background it's it's there it's there yeah um and, and someone had to write it at least for yeah. now at least for now at least for now yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> what else any any final to think words any, yeah i mean um again like composing i just think it was a field that just and still does daunt me i'm not gonna lie and again sure i've composed a piece but i wouldn't quite call myself a composer yet but it's one of those where i just kind of wanted the hardest part about composing i learned at least like this kind of composing was knowing when to stop because <laughs> mm. it's like oh i could have just kept going and i could have come out with this in like a month or two but i was like all right no it's good enough it's something let's just call it here export it I put it in the final cut to edit it with the uh, with a uh, with the nature footage and then just upload it to YouTube from there. That's good. So, That's good. There's this guy I follow on Twitter. This Singaporean guy. His name okay. is Vizakin. We can put a link in his. I forget what his handle is, so we can we can I'll find it and link to it in the show notes. He has this this riff where he he basically says like if you want to learn how to do anything, you know, make 100x right. If on episode one of ITL we <laughs> set out to create the the perfect podcast, we wouldn't have ever published it. You know, here so, we are in episode twenty four, and we still record all the way there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think uh, stay I'm, with us, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. By episode one hundred, I promise you, we'll be we'll be good. So, 
Something I, I want to run by you and get your take on is something I've encountered in the past. Yeah, I don't know how to give a short answer to this question, but basically I want to talk about the piano and the piano as an instrument. Because I really think it's an underrated instrument. And that even sounds silly, I think, to some people. Sounds silly to me. But keep going with yeah. the question and then... Yeah, so let's say like coming, I've heard this, even in like university I heard this, and I may have even said it, which is weird because I play piano, but I, I do know, um, I've heard this say from string players or woodwind players or brass players in the university, they're like, well, what's so, what's so interesting about the piano? It's just pushing down keys, right? Where different trumpet players, different flute players, different violinists, everyone has a very different tone, but a piano is just, you know, you push an F, it's an F. What's so interesting about the piano? So when I said it sounds silly to me, you interpreted that as as if I were saying that I think that's silly because of course the piano is not that great. Whereas what I mean is that the reason that question sounds to me silly is that I think of course piano is after the organ, probably the best instrument. Yeah. So how maybe after the voice too? Would you put the voice up there? Or? Uh, Not vocalists, the voice. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I guess the the voice has to be the the, the place yeah. from which all all instrumentalists, you know, grow. I've always yeah, found, okay, I've, I, yeah, I've, I've always found that that the piano. I absolutely love the piano, and I think it's hard for me to imagine that anyone doesn't. So th- that's more what I meant when I said yeah. that I think it sounds silly to call the piano underrated. So let's look at it this way, right? Because yeah, I've heard, say, violinists say, yeah, well, it's not the most musical instrument because it's just pushing buttons, where the violin is an instrument you really have to play and work to get sound out of. It's like a, it's not a battle, but it's like a, almost like an extension of you in a way, right? And I don't think that's wrong because it was in one of the, we've talked about it before, the that really great Beethoven Masterclass series done in Chicago with Daniel Berenboin really phenomenal in one of the q a sessions after the master class i forget quite what the question was but or it might be like how you approach interpretive decisions on the piano differently with beethoven than you do when baron boyne's conducting the orchestra it's something like that and baron boyne he kind of says like the piano is in his eyes the most neutral instrument and he just like puts his elbow down and like plays an f and he goes yeah look it's my elbow it could be an ashtray right like you can't do that on a violin <laughs> but he said from that neutrality comes so much expressive possibility and freedom but he says the thing you must do as a pianist is first admit understand and accept and embrace that neutrality itself which that's something i've kind of always kind of thought about what's your kind of take on something like that i think that that neutrality opens up a door to I don't want to say real music. That's maybe too churlish. But I think it opens up like a door to, to more interesting conversations, right? About, about what music can be. Mm. A lot of my sort of in- interpretive decisions, I, I take cues from, from pianists. And I really don't think about my, my sound at all. Um, I, I spend my time thinking in terms of articulation. Right, which is not just the way that you start an, a note, but it's the way that you end a note, and I think that's where all of the character lies. Yeah. And and when I look at the difference between someone like Glenn Gould and Murray Pariah, yeah, yeah, right. That's that's all there is. It's all articulation, right? Glenn Gould sounds like a mandolin or a harpsichord, mm, oh yeah. right? Sure, yeah. Um, Murray Pariah sounds like an entire string session. 
It's not the sound. It's the articulation. And with the violin, I think, you know, it's it's not the sound, it's 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 the bow. It's the amount of bow that you're using, it's the it's the way that you're using the bow. Right? That's the real difference between um a Baroque violinist and a and a sort of concerto, like modern concerto violinist, right? It's not sure. it's not necessarily the kind of bow that they're using, though though that helps. It's the way that they use the bow to, to use to inflect the articulation. Um, and I think the same way in terms of my own flute playing. I spend all my time thinking about the air and the articulation, right? Mm. The beginnings and the ends of the air and the note. And I think it opens up a whole world of decisions about music that you're forced to then make because I think there's so many people who are, you know, people who play like flute or trumpet. Um, they spend their entire lives basically thinking about how to create the kind of sound that they think is beautiful that they never end up thinking about how to actually structure a piece of music. Yeah. Yeah, you're actually starting to light off a few light bulbs. So what I think is interesting about the piano as an instrument, so the piano just as a medium, and what I would tell someone that maybe says, oh, it's just pushing buttons. The hard thing about playing the piano repertoire, about playing the piano as an instrument, is the amount of decisions you have to make. All right, so I, I would say playing the piano is much closer to being the conductor of an orchestra, like the role of being a conductor and what that entails. The piano is the closest instrument to that. And that's no coincidence why so many of the great conductors were pianists, right? right? Like Daniel Barenboim mm-hmm. or Leonard Bernstein. This is the other thing our old friend Wagner declared to be especially important for a conductor the ability to find the melody in all this mass of notes. What's kind of cool and always encouraging about classical music is how humble, like the greatest of the great classical musicians are. Like we talked about Gil Shaham, and how it's more common than not is they're very humble people because they know they're not the best. Because you can't be the best. It's such a wide field. Even if you're the best soloist, you know, of your generation, you're not as good at playing second violin in a quartet as a professional quartet violinist is, right? Even yeah. So. This, um, I think this is just so apparent on piano, where there's so many different camps of being a pianist. This is a gross oversimplification, <laughs> and you know, real hardcore classical pianists don't murder me, but I'm gonna go with it anyways. I kind of feel there's two camps in classical piano where you can kind of fall into. There's the Rubenstein camp and the Horowitz camp. <laughs> And this is the, not only in your repertoire, but the way you play, what you focus on, and what you actually really get good at. So there's the Horowitz camp, which I know this is a gross oversimplification, but it's more the Rachmaninoff, more the list, more the very technically demanding and just physically and musically demanding from a technical perspective music, like the Rachmaninoff piano concertos. So in the Horowitz camp, I would also put in there Dennis Matsuev. Who else goes in there? Um, Yefim Bronfman, you know, mm. incredible pianist, like some of the best in of the 20th century, right? The other side of the equation I would call the Rubenstein camp, which is more Chopin-y and more about Mozart and more about Schumann. And there I would put Riccio Pellini, Christian Zimmerman, uh, Mitsuko Uchida, those sorts like of pianists. Michelangelo. Yeah, again, this is very oversimplifying because I know if you're great at piano, you can play both. But but if you look at, you know, Daniel Barenboim falls in that camp. I don't think he's ever recorded the Rachmaninoff piano concertos. And I don't think he ever wanted to or would. And it's not because he can't. No, he's a world-class pianist. He can. 
if he wanted to. But he's chosen to not focus on that. He's chosen to to study until he dies Mozart and um, and Chopin. Like some of his recordings, uh, like his Mozart piano sonata cycle is is phenomenal. And same with his Beethoven cycle, right? And again, you have to choose how to specialize as a classical musician in general. But as a pianist, I think you really have to make that a conscious choice that's visible and that people know about. And you're on the record for making that choice. And yeah, yeah. So we talked about some music or some instrumentation or composers exposed truths about music. The way we were talking about post-tonal music, asking like the big questions and truths about music of what is sound versus what is music and where is that line, right? That's just one example. Piano, I think, exposes a different set of truths where this choice of specialization and the fact that you cannot be the best pianist is just so obvious and right there in front of you. I wish that more flutists thought this way because... Actually, I think Emmanuel Poet has talked about this, where with with piano for sure, and maybe even with violin, it's not even possible to play everything in the repertoire. So you have to specialize, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with flute, it actually is. It, it is. It's <laughs> kind same of, with trumpet. Yeah. 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 So you can get people like Emmanuel Poet, who has such an incredibly wide repertoire. It's truly amazing the range of music that he plays, and plays uh, you know incredibly well. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, the the man's an animal, um, and he's so, a full time orchestral flutist in the yeah. Philharmonic. So we're <laughs> yeah, yeah. He does something like 160 concerts a year, which is un- yeah. unreal. Anyway, yeah. but um, you know, that's possible. It's possible to to exhaust the flute repertoire. It's not even close to possible for piano. So you have to specialize. But like, like you said, I think that's a very good way of putting it, in that it exposes the truth, which is which is that I think, I think even in the flute repertoire. I'm all for specialization. It's possible mm-hmm. to exhaust the flute repertoire, but I think one does specialize eventually. You know, no matter what, one one does end up playing some music better than others. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of like a lie that flutists tend to tell themselves. I say flutists, but I, this could apply to pretty much any instrument except for yeah. piano, violin, and organ. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a lie that they tell themselves that you can be an all-rounded musician. You know. Hmm. I'm not sure that's the case. Glenn Gould always had this phrase that I thought was really interesting, that he always talked in terms of not music that he didn't like, but in terms of music that didn't like him. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's 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 very interesting, right? And as a pianist, you're forced to make those kinds of decisions. You're like, oh, you know, this just, it's not because I can't play technically. It's just, this just isn't my thing. And there's just a whole lifetime's worth of repertoire that is my thing. Yeah. So I may as well do that, right? And every pianist has to make that decision. And and I wish more flutists did. Because I think it would lead to more interesting recordings. Pianists are forced to kind of do that. And again, their choices are very public because you can see the records they've put out. Exactly. One of my favorite pieces for piano is for, for solo piano is the first Schumann piano sonata. 
such a lovely, gorgeous piece of music and kind of cool as well contextually. I forget exactly when it came out. It's probably like the 1830s or when it was written and premiered. Yeah, probably the 1830s or 1840s or something. And it was one of the first, if not the first, major piano sonata written after the death of Beethoven. Because in Europe, everyone was afraid to try to write a piano sonata <laughs> after the monstrous, you know, 32 Beethoven sonatas that are just so, they're part of the Shakespeare of Western music. It's just so foundational and so great. Everyone knew it'd be compared to that. So everyone was kind of afraid to. And Schumann's first piano sonata, you can almost tell from the first, like, 20 seconds, it's not written by Beethoven. This is something completely different. In just the first few minutes alone, you can just see how many different colors you can get out of the piano. Just such a beautiful, wonderful piece of music. But yeah, in just the first couple minutes, you you can just it's like a few pieces already put in one, but so uh, cohesive and nice. And but again, it's hard to play because of that. It's hard. It's challenging. I mean, it's not the easiest piece technique wise, but it's it's not terribly challenging either. But yeah, to just to nail all those colors that come through so quickly. And this is you know still the early Romantic period. That's a piece that I think just showcases the beautiful variety possible, even in just the realm of classical early romantic piano, um, if played well. And again, that's the challenging part about piano is nailing that. I mean, hey, a good example. Of what oh, what was that piano professor's name at Indiana when, when we were there? The French guy um, who was phenomenal. Oh, Emil Namoff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We went to that that um, recital of him playing all the... Debussy etudes, book one and then book two. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like book one, intermission, the book two. And there were some times where he he figured out how to get like a metallic e sound out of the piano that was so gorgeous and cool and things. And and I was like, wow, that is. And yeah. you you know it's a great recital when every piano student at IU and every piano professor was there in the audience. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what is he up to now? Yeah, this is yeah. this is like um you know going to see. Einstein in his study in Princeton or something. Exactly, exactly, right. yeah. yeah. Even right. the other pianists there, who are, who are all world-class pianists, they're like, what the hell is Namoff going to get up to tonight? I yeah. have to go see this. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, th th there's a recording of him in Bloomington playing, playing I think, both books one and two of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Oh, And we'll, we'll put this lovely. in the show notes, and he does the same thing. He gets sounds, he gets sounds out of Bach that I've never heard on a piano before. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, re- I remember this recital coming up of the WC etudes. My piano teacher, Hei Woon, was even telling me, oh, are, are you going to the recital Saturday? Are you going, like, she would, like the word was out around campus that yeah. this was something you should see. And and we talked earlier about my original composition, you know, uh, an arc it had, right? Beginning, mi- beginning, middle, and end. Um, I felt even at that recital, the way he would get different tones out of the piano that actually formed its own narrative. Yeah. You know, an even greater layer over the interpretive choices he makes with the WC works. But yeah, there's a a structure and a progression to the way he changed the color of the piano throughout that recital. I don't know if we already did this, but you know, listen to Chris's composition. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I, I forgot about that. It has a piano in it. It does. It does have a piano in it. I felt piano. It felt good. Boo. All right, that's it for me, folks. <laughs> Been a great crowd. <laughs> I love the fine way he plays a Steinway. I love to watch his fingers Oh, the keys, the ivories And with a pedal, he loves to meddle Not only music from Broadway He's so delighted when he's invited To hear some long-haired genius play So you can keep your fiddle And your bogey a P-I-A-N-O-O-O Well, let's stop right up to an upright For a fine tone, baby grand <laughs> <laughs>